The following show is a rebroadcast of an earlier recording. Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I of course cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show, that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio show. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Everyone had a great holiday. Um, We wanted to tie in today's content with the holiday just to be really just to be cute about it. So we're doing a thanks and giving show. And I'm pretty sure Kirby did this last year. Maybe. Maybe the, the outline was a little bit different and the content was different, obviously. Right. Um, but we wanted to talk about inheriting monies and leaving a legacy. So approaching inheritances from both angles, whether you're mm-hmm. the recipient or the one leaving the assets to someone. And I thought it was an appropriate time so we've taught, we chatted the first um, couple segments of the show or the first hour was focusing on if you're the recipient of dollars. So you're being thankful. You're on, you're on the thank you. Side. We didn't actually mention that in the, when we were talking about it, that to be thankful, oh, <laughs> but thank you. that was the whole premise of, of today's show is yeah. that um, you're thankful right. for, um, you know, though it generally comes from an unfortunate event in the passing of someone, you're perhaps you know, most likely thankful for um, receiving assets. I certainly met lots and lots of people who, you know, an unfortunate thing happens, but can better their own financial situation, certainly um, as a result. Which is 
if I'm not mistaken, many parents' wishes, right? I mean, we work, we work with a lot of older people who are, who are in this stage of life where they're um, not preparing for debt, but, like, but they're positioning their assets and such, and they want right. to be able to care for their family even after they're not around. And so um, it's certainly common for people to, that, you know, that's what a lot of parents want for their kids, although it's, you know, some parents or some clients, certainly some clients we have are not concerned about their kids because their kids are successful themselves. And a lot of, you know, parents will kind of joke, oh, they have more money than we do already right. and stuff like that. But um, anyway, I digress. We wanted to focus this segment on positioning your assets to leave a legacy or leave an inheritance to whether it's your kids or, or whoever, or nieces and nephews, grandkids, um, anyone certainly that, that is a loved one figured in that category. So one of the things we do for our retiree clients is what we call income planning, which, well, it's not that fancy of a term, but it's just kind of a fancy term for like, where do we, where do you take your money from when you need money beyond social security and or pension? Where do you take your monies from so that you can meet your expenses and, and live your life and hopefully enjoy your retirement? So income planning is just our our way of uh, determining which account, if there are several, there aren't always several, but sometimes people have several different types of accounts from a tax point of view, um, where someone draws their regular income from or their annual, monthly or annual income. So I often will say, and, I'm, and, and, and there's a lot of truth to this, there is there is almost always a difference between, from a tax point of view, what is best for the, let's, let's assume it's a retiree, what is best for the retiree during his or her lifetime from a tax point of view in terms of where to draw assets in an efficient way. And that's usually the exact opposite of what is best for their kids when their kids inherit monies. And I generally bring this up, I bring this up most frequently when I have a meeting with a client and they bring their adult, adult kids with them, which happens frequently because, um, well, for whatever reason, there's, yeah. there's just a lot of parents that, you know, as they get older, they want their adult children to know what is going on in their financial life so that they can, you know, so that there is someone that's there that understands and, and has a relationship with their financial professional so that if they pass or if they can't make you know decisions anymore, then there's someone in the loop. So this is, it's relatively common. Um, and so I, and I generally, you know, I pretty much always bring this up when we have these family meetings, because if someone is coming into my office with their family, with their adult kids, I know that and they're being very open about the amount of their assets and, and, and their whole financial picture. I know that that person is concerned about or prioritizes planning for the family, right? So someone that walks in, in by his or herself and maybe doesn't want their kids involved, which, you know, no judgment on our side of the table. You, you know, people have their own preferences about that. But there are sometimes when when adult parents, when parents don't want their kids involved in their financial life. And in that situation, I'm, I'm planning just for that client, right? And we might have discussions beyond, but we're planning for that client. And it's just a little bit different from when someone walks in with their family, because then I know that that 
planning or that, you know, that the financial picture is for the family and not just that one person. So I think that it just introduces a little bit of a different dynamic. Mm -hmm. So if you think about a retiree while he or she is living and what is best for them from a tax point of view in terms of where they draw their assets. So from a tax efficiency standpoint, the best place for us to take money from to supplement a retiree's fixed income is number one, a Roth IRA if they have one, because all dollars come out of that tax free. Number two, a non-qualified or a non-retirement account if they have one, because income, because dollars from that account the sort of the worst tax consequences, capital gains rates, but it's not even fully taxed at capital gains rates because there's what's called called return of uh, capital. You don't need to get too nerdy on that one, but that's a very tax efficient place to get money usually. And then the third place or the worst place for us to get money for a retiree while he he or she is living is their retirement account because all dollars that come come out of there is taxable at income rates. So for that person while they're living, it makes sense for them to draw down either first or most heavily their Roth and then their non-retirement and then their retirement. But if you think about planning for the family versus planning for one person, it's pretty much the exact opposite. So what is generally best for the kids is that mom or dad draws down their retirement monies first. The taxable. Right. Pays the taxes at their tax rate and then leaves the kids the non-retirement assets because we talked about how those get a step up in basis and are very tax efficient for the recipient and a Roth IRA. Mm -hmm. So if if someone was to inherit a very small retirement account and a very large non-retirement and or Roth IRA account, that's best for that second generation that inherits the money but it just happens to be the worst drawdown strategy usually for the person while they were living. So that's what I mean. Like it's the exact opposite. So when we're planning with someone, it's important to understand their priorities. So is, is their priority reduction of taxes because they hate paying taxes as everybody does and they want to minimize their taxes due and they want to preserve, um, you know, their assets in terms of nominal you know, value as best as possible. That's sort of one strategy and a whole nother strategy is what's best factoring in what's best, not only for me, but for my kids, you know, what's, what's the priority because it's very different. And some, and you know, oftentimes we kind of go in the gray area because those are like, those are two extremes. And then, but there's obviously um, the gray area and you sort of, you do a little bit of both. Yeah, I think, yeah, and I think we, in general, I think we usually end up somewhere in that, in the middle ground there where we take a little bit of each. Yeah. Just because, you know, we don't know the future. We, you know, we don't know the future tax situation. You know, we don't know if they're going to change tax codes. Right. We only know what we know today. Um, and we don't want to, we don't want to exhaust somebody's, um, you know, one of their accounts versus the other ones because then, then we're, then we're, then we're definitely limited in the future. Right. Um, so if we kind of... Um, we generally balance it out anyway. Yeah, yeah. balance it out a little bit just because we think, you know, in general, that's this kind of the safest thing to do and it kind of preserves some of that flexibility um, for, for down the road. Right. And so we touched earlier on the show about taking advantage of 
of tax brackets. And this sort of plays in here in that, like I said, when, 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 you're, when you're income planning for a family of multiple generations, which you don't have to do, this is completely personal preference. When you're income planning for the, the entire family, like we said earlier, oftentimes the, the matriarch or patriarch of that family, the, the oldest person with the assets that we're, that we're talking about right now, oftentimes that person is in a lower tax bracket than their adult kid because their adult kids are still working, they, you know, they're in their highest income earning years, and, and a retiree likely has lower needs and isn't, you know, their taxable income might be lower than their adult kids just based on, you know, just situationally dependent. So if you think of it in that regard, taxes are going to be paid at some point. They're either going to be paid by the, the retiree parent during his or her lifetime, or they're going to be paid by the kids when they inherit the dollars, or maybe they're going to be paid by the grandkids when if it gets to the next generation. But taxes are going to be paid at some point. And if you're family planning, then you might decide to take advantage of the retiree's lower tax bracket if that's the case. I mean, you know, looking at the, the tax brackets changed for this calendar year, but looking at, you know, tax brackets for um, a married couple, like let's say a retiree's adult um, a kid is married um, and let's say that they make good money and their income is over $315,000. They're in the 32% tax bracket. And let's contrast that just as an example, but you can contrast that with someone, a retiree, for example, maybe they are living on social security and they have very uh, minimal needs, plus now a $12,000 standard deduction. And if they're not drawing much out of retirement accounts, if they're single and their income is less than $38,000, taxable income, which would factor in a standard deduction, so they're real income could be more than that. But if they have modest expenses and, you know, they could be in the 12% tax bracket. And so that's a 20% difference between a 12% tax bracket and the 32 if, if they're adult kids, if they were married and they made good money, or even if they were single and they made great money. Um, so that's that's what we meant by sort of taking advantage of tax brackets. And in, in the world of paying taxes, you want to pay taxes at the lowest bracket possible. And this is just an example of in a perfectly legal manner, <laughs> you know, taking advantage of taking potentially, a, you know, distributions from the retirement monies of, again, that older retiree and paying taxes at a lower bracket. Of course, you have to bear in mind how much you draw and, and, and you know, whether or not that bumps you to another bracket. But it, you know, you can sort of take advantage of getting money on a retirement account and paying a lower amount of taxes on it and preserving non-retirement accounts that they exist for the next generation. So that's just a, that's just a legacy planning um, option. But again, it completely differs from tax efficiency planning in your own life, not factoring in the next generation. And so just make sure you discuss with your financial professional what is most important to you. And if preserving assets or leaving efficient assets um, to your beneficiaries is important to you, then it's just something to discuss. On that note, we want to talk about beneficiary designations. Yes. Because... Talking well, about, yeah, positioning, yeah, positioning yeah. for the next, yeah. I mean, 
we, we, several years ago, we didn't do this forever as long as I've been at McNamara Financial, which is now 15 and a half years, which is crazy and makes me feel older than I feel <laughs> physically. But um, oftentimes in our world, so it's retirement accounts, back up a moment, retirement accounts by nature of the fact that they're retirement accounts, they have beneficiaries associated with them. So when you open up a 401k for your company or an IRA on the application or on the website where you're opening it up, you're going to be asked who you want to name as beneficiaries. If you don't name anyone, your estate is the default beneficiary. And then the intestate laws in your state would, would control who receives those assets. But most people name a beneficiary. It's usually their spouse if they have one. If not, it's their kids in equal in equal uh, percentages. Or actually, we can talk about that in a minute. But um, oftentimes, people will name a beneficiary. And then if they have that account open for 10 or 20 years, they might never again yeah, look at that yeah. beneficiary. We got in the habit probably 8 or 10 years ago, if not longer, of you know, in our annual review meetings with clients, reminding them of how their beneficiaries read because sometimes people do estate planning or someone passes or someone has a new, you know, a new kid or grandkid. And so beneficiary designations are, should be fluid, right? And change as your life changes and as your wishes change. And, um, and you should revisit those regularly. That goes for life insurance as well, by the way. Um, and beneficiary designations supersede a will. So that confuses people. Sometimes people say, well, I don't need to do that. It says in my will who I want my assets to go to. Or, I, or they might say, it says in my trust who I want my assets to go to. Beneficiary designations on retirement accounts supersede both of those documents. Right. Will and, and, and any trust. And the other point to that is if if they're not naming somebody because they want their will to handle it, that's great, but it's going to go through probate and it's going to take a year plus for it to end up wherever it's going. Right. And they would have to name their estate as beneficiary instead of naming that, that right. person. I mean, the, the beauty of a beneficiary designation is that it doesn't go through probate. Beneficiaries step into the assets in relatively immediately as soon as the, the paperwork is done and the logistics are complete. Um, but it's nice in that regard, but your will does not control your beneficiaries of your retirement accounts or your life insurance, by the way, unless you name, unless you name your estate. Mm-hmm. We catch a lot of, if, I guess I will say errors. If you think, if Yeah, and, and so, sometimes, sometimes these errors are, they were intentional, but, but people might not quite understand or, or comprehend the ramifications of certain beneficiary designations. So one thing to consider is, if you, and this is one I hear very frequently, someone might say, uh, or I might ask them, who, who would you like to name as beneficiary of your account? Maybe they have two kids. And they might say, uh, well, I'm going to name my daughter because I know that she'll give half of it to my son, right? Maybe they just, they think it'll be easier or for whatever reason. I hear that all the time or some variation of that. When you're naming a beneficiary on a retirement account, you have to remember that it's a retirement account. And as we talked about, taxable as dollars come out. So if you have a $500,000 retirement account and you name your one child as beneficiary and you trust that that child is going to give half of it to your other child upon your death, I'm sure that person is trustworthy and would follow and, and would do that if that if those were your intentions. However, the adverse tax consequences mm-hmm. to do that are um, much less than ideal. So in, in order for 
If you were to do that and one child steps into an inherited IRA of that $500,000 and they're trying to give 250000 of it to their sibling, you cannot just cut a retirement account and give it to someone. In order for that, that child to do it, they would have to distribute 250000 pay taxes but at income rates on 250000 and either give the net proceeds to their sibling or pay those taxes out of their own cash flow, which they certainly wouldn't want to do because taxes on 250,000 could be $50,000 or more. And, and you want to make sure that that one child doesn't have that tax liability because they were trying to do the right thing. So, I mean, and even if you're talking about small dollars, it's even if you're talking about $5,000, it's just still a little bit messy. So number one, from an income tax point of view, that is not a good plan. So just name the actual people so that one child doesn't have those adverse income tax consequences. And the other component is gift taxes, which we haven't touched on at all today, but, but they're we're saving that we're, we are saving. Yes. We're saving that for our next segment. But there are potentially also adverse tax consequences to give large amounts of money to anyone. So in that example, not a good plan for a variety of reasons. Well, and a couple other things is, you know, you name, let's say you name Susie, you know, you got two kids, you name Susie 100% (laughs) and you pass away and Susie's in legal trouble or Susie's got a lawsuit against her. And now Bobby's, uh, you know, goes, goes to Susie's lawyers and right. um, Or to her ex-husband, if they are getting divorced, half of it could be scooped up in a divorce. Yeah. So there's just, there's a, a lot of times, you know, there are too many assumptions and there are too many things that can, that can go wrong. Um, with that kind of, you know, with that kind of stuff is not a clean so, beneficiary. So, so, you know, is it, if it might seem like a pain, you know, to be constantly changing them or worrying about them, but we think it's worth it, um, you know, to be re, you know, at least looking at them, you know, once a year, yep. uh, or, or some frequency reevaluating, does it still make sense based on people's situations? Uh, all those things. Yeah. Um, what was the other one? Oh, minors. Oh, or minors, minors. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, for another example is maybe a younger family. You know, say, say the adults, you know, the parents are maybe in their, you know, 30s or 40, you know, whatever, where they have young kids. And yeah. so if they name, you know, say they name their spouse as their primary beneficiary and then they name their children as, you know, contingent beneficiaries. But if the children are, you know, if they're six months old, yeah. You know, 10 years old, um, you know, any any age where they're not, you know, capable of managing money or, man, you know, on their own. Um, you know, if you just name them as an outright beneficiary, that's, that money's going to go to them and they can do whatever they want with it. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, as we'll say a million times, we're not attorneys, but we would often tell tell those you know, young family members to consider maybe maybe opening up, you know, creating a trust with an attorney, um, you know, that would, you know, hold those assets for the kids. And then there would be a trustee, you know, somebody of age, uh, you know, um, you know, with their best interest in mind that yeah. will uh, help manage the money for them. Um, so that's another one that we often see is, you know, somebody naming their, you know, very young child as yeah. a beneficiary. And I mean, in, in, if, if a young child was to inherit monies via, via designation, a beneficiary designation, until they were the age of majority, 
I get confused because there's sort of two ages of majority in Massachusetts, but I believe it's until they're 18, a financial custodian would be named. And, but if they're over 18, they would step into the assets outright and could do whatever they want with the asset. And in, in for, you know, I don't have 18-year-old children, but I'm imagining that most 18-year-olds aren't as responsible with money as most 38-year-olds, for example. So an 18-year-old is still, in many people's eyes, um, a child from a responsibility point of view, mm -hmm. perhaps with managing finances anyway. I'm certainly not implying anyone's 18-year-old is irresponsible in any other regard, but from a managing money point of view, um, you know, impulsive. We talked about not being impulsive earlier and probably a higher probability of impulsiveness, uh, impulsiveness, is that a word? Mm -hmm. Taking place uh, with inheriting large chunks of money. Um, but if, but if a child under the age of majority inherits assets, a financial custodian would be named. How, I, what I'm a little, what I am unclear of though, and in the state plan, when we have our estate planning show, we'll have to get this question answered too, is what's the, who's the default custodian, right? I, I don't know if it's the person that they might've named in the will, you know, if there's a will and a financial custodian yeah. is named, perhaps is it, is it, is it, is it that person? Yeah. yeah, it could be a judge. Right. In, in, if there was no legal document or there was no will, a judge could be, or, you know, people can apply for guardianship. I know legal guardianship, probably financial custodianship. So, um, you know, that, that's, you know, but, but your point is a really good one. And that, you know, an 18 or a 20 or even a 25 year old, you know, that a lot of people might still think that's too young to be controlling finances again depending on the size of the potential inheritance you're talking about so that might not be a great planning tool but you know another reason that people take advantage of trusts of the revocable type revocable living trusts are sort of um, you know you'll hear the term like control beyond the grave and some people do the estate planning because they want to be able to control beyond the grave mm -hmm. what happens with their assets after their death and you know you, you could um, write things into the trust like you know they receive x percent of the assets at this age and another x percent at this age and you know there's there's more ways to sort of maybe force that responsibility on on someone and, uh, so that that is a you know one of the discussions we have with clients is well if you have if you have had a trust prepared by an attorney first of all what type of trust is it and does that attorney recommend that you change your beneficiary designation on your retirement plans as a result? Sometimes the answer is yes, and sometimes it's no, which just depends on the circumstance. Um, but when I will say one of the most common mistakes that I see people make from a, when, when they do estate planning is that they don't um, sort of close the loop or follow through. So I believe, and this probably is not a blanket statement, but I've seen many attorneys, estate planning attorneys, when they, um, if they draft a trust for someone or if they prepare legal documents with someone, they usually, you know, deliver it like a bind, like a beautiful binder or a folder or something, you know, so it's a nice delivery. And there's oftentimes like a cover letter with instructions to the client that says, you know, enclosed, please find all these things mm -hmm. and here's what you need to do. I don't know the statistics, but I am telling you, it has to be less than 50% of the time 
after delivery, that client reads the letter and actually does what they're supposed to do. And Kirk, we are examples of that because I don't actually think we ever did every single thing that we were supposed to do after we did estate planning, you know, mm-hmm. retitling this asset, retitling that asset. Part of it was like retitling bank accounts. And I think we did the major account. stuff, but yeah, I don't think we did everything. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it's, it's very frequent. I met with a family the other day and we were having this conversation about, you know, family income planning, but we were also having conversations about, well, mom did this estate planning years ago and, um, you know, she had a trust drawn up and I looked at her assets and she had a non-retirement account and it wasn't a trust. Was or was it? was not. It was not. And so they, there was a trust drawn up, but never funded. And I said, I'm pretty sure if you go home and you pull out that binder or that folder from the attorney, there's going to be a letter either on top or somewhere right there that says, you know, retitle this asset into the trust or, you know, fund the trust in this way. And and I just, unfortunately, I think there's, there's a lot of times when that, those follow-up steps don't get followed up on. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, a, a, a large... Uh, re- a significant reason for that is probably that the person that the client didn't understand what they were supposed to do. And I read that letter, and while it makes almost perfect sense to to you and to me, or or most of it makes sense anyway, it might not make sense to the layperson that doesn't, you know, that is not in our world every day. Um, and so that you know, one of the biggest mistakes people make is that they do estate planning and then they don't implement their estate plan. So just having signed those documents. With regards to a trust, for example, um, doesn't mean that you fund a trust. You have yeah. to go through and fund the trust. If, if you're supposed to, you might have to change beneficiaries on retirement accounts. I'm going off on a huge tangent here, by the way. Um, but I get, I get a little bit. Um, I don't know. I get like a little. I get, I get um, not frustrated. That's worked not the right up. word. I get worked up about it because I, because I, I feel sad for these people that they in a, and luckily you know in in these the situations i can think of we're talking about it like before it's too late but right. you know they haven't passed it, yet but there's I mean, they, still time but i guess yeah. i get they spent a lot of, you can yeah you know they spent some good money you know yeah. creating these documents and then if they don't actually do the right thing they're Wasted they're, they're, they're yeah. not effective potentially wasted i mean well I mean, you're, you know, your will is your will and that's written and that, that was signed and, and right. a lot of those documents, you know, different answer for some of those documents. But with regards to a trust, there's generally things that happen as a, or are supposed to happen as a follow-up. And unfortunately, I don't think that that's the case frequently. I just meet a lot of people that haven't followed up with their estate plan, perhaps through no fault of their own. Um, they forgot or they didn't understand or whatever. So anyway, if you, if you did a trust, and you didn't read through that letter and, and do all the things you were supposed to, pull that document out. Um, do that as a Christmas present to yourself and make sure you, you followed up on, on what that attorney asked you to do. Also, I to help. All right, so that was positioning of assets for leaving a legacy. We, we didn't touch on, maybe at the beginning of, after this quick break, we could touch on uh, asset protection. Mm-hmm. We didn't really touch on that. We could do that relatively quickly and then sort of talk about some charitable giving on the giving side as well. So happy Thanksgiving weekend, everyone. I hope you had a great holiday. We were talking about thanks and giving today. So receiving inheritances and preparing assets or or, or to leave to someone or or gifting. And I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. You're listening to McNamara on Money. Joined this morning by my husband, Kirk Reed. Um, 
This is great. We're spending all this time together over the holiday weekend, doing the radio show together. Um, it's all good things. So we will take a break. We'll come right back. We'll finish up our last segment on thanks and charitable giving, and we'll be right back. McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio and also sometimes TV show. We are video recording this show. We're on TV today. Um, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. You can find more information about me and my husband, Kirk Reed, is my co-host today and my and our family's business at McNamaraFinancial.com. If you love the website, you're welcome. That was like, it was like, I had so much fun building that website. And it was, um, I probably spent way too much time on it, but it, but it was fun. And I'll, you know, be prepared to switch it up every once in a while. I'm now an expert on, no, I shouldn't say that. I'm not an expert on web development, but, you know, GoDaddy makes it pretty easy. A webmaster? Yeah. Uh, so is this show on TV or just on our website? Um, this, good question. Our video recordings are generously aired on MCTV by the lovely folks at MCTV. So you can find us there, and um, I, I think the state, I think the channel depends on whether you have Verizon or Comcast. So mm. I don't, I don't know that. Um, but it will be on MC Marshall Community Television. We are. I've been talking about this for months, but I am going to be following through with this. We are going to be taking clips of our videos, like you know, short, digestible. Uh, segments of our segments. video footage of the show and putting them on our website. We've been sort of, yeah, this is like a brainchild of mine and my dad that um, we've been working on this for, we've been like sort of thinking about it for a long time and we had to get all the pieces in place in order to, we need someone to go through the video footage and decide what, you know, clips segmented. Seg segmented and um, we do have a, we do have some people that help us cut the video footage with blood MTT here are great have another result that helps us so that was a long-winded answer kirk but we are right now it's just on mctv but we're hoping to be grabbing short one to two minute videos and putting them on the website under like like a q a section like if someone goes to our website and they have a question about inheriting money they might find a few clips from today's show they could watch a quick video and they can no, those people sound like they know what they're talking about. Right. I'm going to give them a call, and <laughs> that's what I should do with my inherited dollar. So um, stay tuned for that. We are talking about thanks and giving this morning and approaching it from different angles, and hopefully we've answered some questions if you're someone who has inherited or is in, in, anticipating inheriting assets. Hopefully we've answered some of your questions with regards to tax implications of inheriting dollars and um, what, you know, what to do with those dollars, though it's really not a blanket answer. And, and, you know, the advice, as all of our advice, is tailored to um, your situation. So we would need to know more about your situation before we make a recommendation. But talk to your financial professional if you have questions. Um, and also, hopefully, you know, if, if you're of an age where you're planning to leave dollars to someone. Hopefully we've answered some questions regarding, you know, ways to think about that or the best ways to implement your, you know, leaving your legacy. That was the intent behind the show. It's sort of our last segment here in the next 20 or so minutes will be, um, well, we're going to, we're going to close the loop on, um, circle back. 
we're going to circle back on positioning assets for a legacy because one thing we didn't touch on was asset protection in the form of long-term care insurance or or, uh, legal planning. And then we're going to just touch on charitable giving. You know, for a lot of people, it's a charitable time of year and that's sort Mm -hmm. of top of mind for people. And uh, so we wanted to touch on that. So, but uh, last segment, we were talking about positioning assets to leave a legacy and we were focusing on income planning and drawing assets down efficiently, bearing in mind your wishes and perhaps what, you know, what's best for you and what's best for the family, how those things are different. We talked about you know, uh, designating beneficiaries, what to do, what not to do. One thing we didn't touch on was asset protection, which in our world uh, is sort of the, another way of saying planning for, um, well, not necessarily, but what comes to mind when we talk about asset protection is protecting your assets from a drawdown if someone needs long-term care services, which are which are just very expensive with the cost of medical care increasing and the cost of custodial care being very um, being very costly. It's a potentially um, large drawdown of assets for people. Um, you know, there's all sorts of statistics out there regarding cost of care, whether it's at home or in uh, assisted living or in nursing home, but you know, on the high end, I think you're talking if someone needs, you know, care in a nursing home, um, on the high end, you could be talking in this area of the world, $15,000 a month. And, you know, so I don't even know if that's the high end. Anymore. Maybe that's not yeah. the high, maybe yeah. that's the average. Yeah. I guess I haven't looked at that cost of care study. If anyone is curious about that, by the way, Jen Worth publishes a cost of care survey every year. I believe they update those numbers and you can sort by not only by state, but by your region in the state, and they break it down by, I think, private nursing home, I think assisted living, maybe even cost of home care, like, you know, hourly uh, wages or custodial care giver. Um, that's a great source of information, but, you know, it, it, it is, depending on the amount of care needed and the frequency and the location, is potentially a big liability for people if someone uh, needs care later in life with advances in medical technology and, and people living to older ages because of, of medical uh, the advances in the medical field. Um, people are living longer, which is great, but it's, it has increased the need for um, people needing care as they get older. Yeah. So actually, yeah, I just pulled it up here. Uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty neat. Yeah, website. they have, yeah. Uh, so Boston area, twenty eighteen. So for a private room, that's the most expensive. Private room yeah. in a nursing home is, is about 13000 a, oh, okay. a month. So maybe on the high end, you're in the 13000 yeah. um, per Boston. month area. But that is, um, what is that, Seven, 70 grand a year. And, you know, if someone needs care for a period of several years, that can add up to be a draw from a portfolio, especially if you're paying taxes to get that seven grand a year. That's, um, did yeah. I do that math? No, yeah. yeah, that's wrong. It's like 158000 Oh, I was thinking, yeah, you're right. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Where's my brain today? That's the second mistake I made today. I hardly <laughs> ever make mistakes, especially it's all, with math. All that turkey. Oh, my goodness. It's the turkey. <laughs> my brain isn't 100% in it. I'm in the holiday spirit. I'm, uh, yes, okay. Yeah. Let me have Trip, another sip. Of, effect. Let me, let me have another sip of <laughs> my caffeinated beverage. Yeah. Um, it's a big number. Yeah. Yes, okay. It's a big, Yeah, I thought that sounded low. I was, like, I was multiplying by five. What is wrong? <gasps> Oh my goodness. Thanks for being here to keep me honest. This sure. Wow. This would have been uh, a whole different show without you here to, to 
to correct those mistakes. But anyway, it's a lot of money. It could potentially a large drawdown on a portfolio. Something that we certainly address with our clients, especially those of higher net worth. Um, there are ways that you can attempt to protect your portfolio or at least a significant portion of it um, via insurance planning or legal planning or some some people choose to what's called self-insure or just segment a portion of their assets and uh, earmark it for medical care, long-term care. Um, you know, what's best for you depends on your net worth, your cash flow, your desires, um, you know, but, but some people choose to protect their assets. Long-term care insurance is one way to do that. Um, there's not a huge, I, I don't know if I want to use the word interest, but in my experience, there's not a ton of people knocking down the door to purchase long-term care insurance. It is, depending on your age and your health, it is expensive. Um, I think it does serve its purpose in the world. And I think there is a, there is, um, a group of people for whom it's very appropriate. And generally it's those people that have assets to protect. So in other words, they have a net worth of a significant amount and they don't, but they don't have enough assets to self-insure. In other words, if you have $10 million and you don't need it all to live your life, then you can, you know, self-insure that need and 150 bucks a year is likely something that you can pay for for several years without, um, much diminishing your net worth if, if you if you are of a significant net worth, but it's those people that are sort of in the middle that that um, long term care insurance serves its purpose. I I don't want to get too much. Uh, I don't want to get too detailed with this. We have done whole separate shows on long term insurance. It can get very complicated, um, and there's there's lots to cover with regards to that. But I just I do think it's important for people to know that there's not just standalone long term care anymore. There are hybrid life insurance, long-term care insurance policies that have gained popularity, I think, for very good reason. And so for people that want an insurance policy that covers some long-term care expenses, but they also want to be assured that they're not, in, in quotes, wasting their dollars. In other words, they want a policy that doesn't that gets used in some form or another traditional long-term care. If you pass away before using the funds in the policy, it's gone unless you pay extra for re reimbursement policies, but not reimbursement. That's another word for it. Um, policies. Yeah, I guess it's reimbursement policies, but this, the life insurance hybrid policies, if you die without using long-term care benefits, there's a death benefit to your name beneficiary. So it's, it's, a, it's not a use it or lose it policy. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, again, we we did a whole, we did a show actually a couple months ago with, with Lisa Silva of Gallagher, and she's very knowledgeable in the area of long-term care. And um, check out our podcast for that one, I think. Um, but, you know, people should just know that that's an option. So it actually makes a lot of sense for people that either have life insurance in place with significant cash value, and maybe those can just be transferred to, a different type of insurance policy or people that have, uh, you know, that, 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 that want coverage, but they, they want some assurity as well that the dollars won't be wasted. Um, you know, and, and again, we've done whole separate shows on legal planning for long-term care and asset protection from a legal point of view. But just really quickly, if people either don't qualify for the insurance or choose not to purchase the insurance, you can preserve your assets to a point 
via some legal planning in the form of what are called irrevocable trusts or third-party trusts where you can essentially take a portion of your portfolio and give it away, get it outside of your name, get it outside of your estate, preserve it for the next generation. But, you know, five years have to pass before it's off the table from a mass health point of view. But it's just another way that people can, if they don't need, if they know they don't need all of their assets to live on, they have more than enough. Congratulations, great portion to be in. And they want to preserve some for their children. Legal planning is an option um, not to be taken lightly. Some things certainly should be talked through. Uh, it's a big decision, but is an option and maybe a discussion to be had with your financial. Program. All right. What do we have? 10 minutes or I so? I don't know. Um, we want to chat. We've got 10 or 11 minutes left. Under the head of thanks and giving, we wanted to also touch on charitable giving mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the tax breaks associated with that. Which or, has- or even or even just giving to family members too. oh, giving, yeah. you know, while you're still alive. Fair enough. Take it away. You you did more preparation for this segment than okay. I. I'm moderately prepared for this segment, but so did you have gifting. Yeah. So I mean, under charitable gifting, I mean, obviously you can you can give, you know, make an outright gift to a charity. You know, while you're still alive, um, you know, in that you know that way they get to you know the charity gets the money. You know, immediately they can use it as they see fit. Um, plus, you know, you would get you know an immediate tax deduction. Um, so that's potentially, you know, yeah, that's potentially, yeah. Uh, assuming it's a qualified charity and all those good things. Yeah. Um, you know, another option is you can, you know, put name a charity in, in your will, uh, or as a, as a beneficiary of an IRA or a partial beneficiary of an IRA, yeah. uh, or a trust, um, yeah. so you could, you know, name a beneficiary that way. Um, and you know, but that, at, at that point, you know, they wouldn't get the money until you, until they passed away, uh, most likely, uh, depending on which, which one of those you pick. Um, or, and then, you know, you wouldn't get your estate would get the tax, um, tax break yeah. uh, versus, versus getting it while you're alive. Um, so is it, hold on, is this an appropriate time to talk about the changes in the tax code? Sure. How, sure. So I'm not a tax preparer. I try not to pretend that I am. Um, but the tax with the tax cuts and jobs act that went into that, that passed at the end of that went into effect this year. Actually, some things were retroactive to the beginning of 17, but as people prepare their taxes for calendar 18, it will be different than it was in calendar 17 for a variety of reasons. One of them was the change to the standard deduction. So mm-hmm. the standard deduction essentially almost doubled for people. I believe, oh my goodness, I believe the prior standard deduction was like $6,300 per person. Now it's $12,000 per person. So now that the, so so your choices with regards to deductions are you either take a standard deduction or you itemize. And the people that itemized were the people that had itemized deductions that were greater than the standard deduction. If your itemized deductions were less than the standard, you would just take the standard. Mm-hmm. People that were itemizing deductions were itemizing things like interest on a mortgage, um, state income taxes, property tax, charitable contributions. These are all examples of things that were itemized deductions. There, it with the changes um, to the standard deduction, and couple that with that, the new limitations on state and local tax deductions or state the common your state and local tax deduction 
wasn't limited. There wasn't a cap on that prior to 18. Now there's a $10,000 cap on the deduction you can take for state income taxes and property taxes combined and local taxes if you have any. So there's a $10,000 cap on that, which means that if your property taxes are $12,000 because you live in a, a, a home that, yeah, that has a value, of, well, it depends on your town and the value of your home, but if your property taxes are $12,000, you can't take that as a deduction anymore. You're limited to $10,000. And also in that case, what are your state income taxes? And now you can't itemize those either because your property taxes are more than the ten. So there are now limits on that. And if you couple that with the fact that um, the standard deduction is now double, fewer people will be itemizing their deductions now. So I think it was something like 40% of people last calendar year itemized their deductions. 2017. 2017. I don't know if that was, I was looking at a statistic. I don't know if that was 16 or 17. I think that was actually 17. A little bit less than half of Americans were itemizing deductions in the recent past, let's call it. Mm -hmm. But because of those limits on state and local tax deduction and because of the new higher standard deduction, which almost doubled, a married couple now will have a $24,000 standard deduction, which is pretty significant. So fewer and fewer people will be itemizing. So where a charitable contribution was previously an itemized deduction, if you're not itemizing anymore, the difference between giving a thousand dollars to charity and two thousand dollars to charity might be a moot point, and right. your it will it might not move your tax needle at all, right. because if you're not itemizing, it doesn't matter, right? So it the I love to get into long stories I, I and wonder, then and then say long story short, but I wonder, um, you know, I kind of wonder how that's going to affect charity. I it it could potentially affect charities in a negative way, yeah, or. Or, I mean, or you could look at it differently in that if someone wants to itemize and, and push their deductions over 24000 if they're, like, let's say their itemized deductions are 23000 and the standard is twenty four. If they give another 1500 bucks to charity, they're going to be itemizing and taking a bigger deduction. So it, if you look at it that way, yeah. it could push charitable contributions higher. Yeah. I'm going to guess not. I'm going to guess not. I'm going to guess not. Yeah. No. I, right. I don't think... I don't think it will be good for charitable organizations because most, well, it'll be interesting to see the statistics. Not that that's the, right. the, the only driver, but you know. Um, right. If you're going to make a charitable contribution because you're feeling charitable, right. hopefully it's not. But however, you know, having said that, people of but the, significant wealth, you yeah. know, can, can do that and get the tax break for it. Right. Anyway, um, so charitable contributions potentially deductible for you potentially jack tax deductible um you know one other thing i put in this section was you know qualified charitable distributions from iras yep um so i i don't know how long this has been in existence but you got uh, five minutes okay so you know for somebody that's you know 70 and a half or older and now they are forced to take distributions from their retirement plans yeah there are some people that are fortunate that they don't maybe don't need that money yeah and you know, so they're forced to take money out, which is going to be taxed. Um, so an alternative is that they could, you know, s instead of taking the money, they can just send it directly from their IRA to a qualified, has to be qualified, yeah. uh, qualified charity. And in doing so, they can, you know, avoid paying the income tax uh, on that money. 
and I believe what I saw was you could basically do that up to a hundred thousand dollars per year. Um, okay. You can, you know, per person. Per, uh, I don't think, yeah, per person or per tax return, but it's, okay. you know, it's a fairly, fairly sizable yeah. number. Um, yeah. So that's something that, you know, you can do to avoid taxes and, and have the money go to a, you know, go to a good use. Um, right. And if, you know, if a charitable organization is in your will or is in your um, wishes posthumously, then doing it during your lifetime and avoiding taxes on required distributions if you don't need the money is a good planning tool. Right. You get to enjoy it. You, know, right. you get to see that the charity right. enjoy it. They get to use the money. Yeah, we have some clients that do that. They they. We send the proceeds of their required distribution direct to a charity. It has to, I believe it has to be a five hundred one c three charitable organization, and, and they get to they get a tax document that uh, that they they do get a tax document that there was a distribution, and it is it, as a taxpayer, it's your responsibility to also get the corresponding document from the five hundred one c three that shows the contribution in order to avoid the taxes. It's not the financial custodian's responsibility. Right. To, um, to to track where your contribution is going and what they're not going to do their due diligence about the 501c3 or not. That's your responsibility as a taxpayer. Okay. Um, so just not to confuse anyone, you will get a tax. If you do that, you will get a tax document, but you have, you'll have but the supporting document to offset um, the tax on that. Yeah. One other thought I kind of had as we were talking was, uh, and I know this is, again, this is one of your favorites, is... <laughs> You know, if you're looking to give some money to maybe a, a younger person, um, you know, opening up a Roth for somebody. Yeah. Um, but the the caveat is that they have to have earned income. So you can you can give them the money. I mean, yeah. you you can fund the the Roth for them, but that person has to have had, you know, earned income in that in that given year in order. For, that's the one right. qualification that the IRS uh, has. Right. Um, there has to be some supporting earned income. I have some parents that do that for. High school age kids, college age kids, you know, they have a part time job. job. Yeah, yeah as long as yeah. they have a, some sort of a part time job where they're reporting. Fair enough that they're yeah. right. If they're waitressing and making very little money and it's mostly cash, then right, different story if they're not reporting. But right. um, yeah, so just make sure to keep their contribution below that. Yeah, but I mean, if you put, yeah, you know, a couple of $500 into a Roth IRA for somebody that's, you know, 15 years old, I mean, yeah. it's something that's hopefully going to grow for a long, long time. So that's another, you know, another gift option. Yeah. Um, and one other thing that came up when I was, you know, thinking about this was, you know, helping somebody with college, um, you know, with college being so expensive, uh, you know, kids are struggling to pay for it. And maybe, maybe even the parents are struggling. And so if maybe for a grandparent and looking, you know, trying to help out your grandchild with college. Um, and there's a couple things, you know, a couple things about that, you know, so if you, if you give the money right out, you know, outright to the kid, then you have to worry about gift taxes and generation skipping gift taxes. So there are some right some complications with that right um another option is you can pay the college directly right and then you don't have to worry about the gift you don't tax do you don't right. worry about the gift tax point of view um but i believe that can that can affect aid it doesn't uh, negatively affect it, it whether can, you give it to the, them directly or whether you give it to the school it potentially it does negatively affect financial aid for the following right. two two years if they're filling out the FAFSA for the following two years right but um, yes, you can avoid gift taxes if you give if a grant, if a grandparent gives it directly to the school to the college, right? You avoid, you avoid the gift taxes, right. but you can yeah. you can negatively impact their aid package, right? Um, potentially, right? Um, you know, another option is you know putting money into a five twenty nine, you know, in advance of somebody going to school, mm -hmm. you know, a young grandchild, or um, you know, so you can, that's another option. 
Uh, or another option is wait until they graduate and then help them pay off their loans. And that way you can kind of avoid avoid the gift. I mean, well, you still have the gift tax issue, but you can avoid, you know, not we're not uh, impacting their aid uh, eligibility um, if you help them after, after the fact. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, they hopefully their loans the, were deferred and they didn't have much, yeah, much interest. Well, you know, you know yeah. the year that as soon yeah. as they graduate, as soon as yeah. they're out of college, they don't have to worry about FAFSAs and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. um, that's another option is just waiting until they're done. Yeah. Um, is that all you have? That's perfect. College. That yeah. is perfect timing because we should probably wrap up. Okay. Um, but I hope uh, this is, I hope this was helpful for people as they think about uh, positioning assets to either gift to family members or positioning assets to leave a legacy after death and also for people that have uh, inherited monies and are, are trying to think about best of the money but I don't know we thought it would be cute to time that you know answers to those type of questions with Thanksgiving given it's a, a time of year to be thankful and think about giving so that was our thanks and giving show uh, 2018. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed. That was, I was joined today by my husband, Kirk Reed. I hope everyone enjoys the rest of the holiday weekend. And if you need to find information about us, we can. Uh, you can find us at McNamaraFinancial.com. Have a great weekend, everybody. Bye-bye.